Hello and welcome back to another episode of C-Suite Conversations with Scott Miller, Franklin Covey's weekly podcast where I am privileged to walk about 10 feet off of that set, which is on Leadership with Scott Miller, the largest leadership podcast in the world, and walk over here and sit down and have great conversations with people from various levels of the C-Suite. Each week we provide you different insights on people's journeys, their professional goals, how they made it to where they are, and then learn a few things along the way about how to increase the trajectory of your career as well. Today, we have Sam Shriver. He is the Vice President of Thought Leadership at the Center for Leadership Studies. You know their content well. Many of our organizations work also with them. They are friendly and healthy competitors in the space. Now, you might be wondering, why is Franklin Covey shining our light on a competitive leadership provider? Well, it's obvious. It's because one of our co-founders' legacies, Dr. Stephen R. Covey's, was to have an abundance mentality. We don't believe we have the lock on every leadership solution at Franklin Covey. We very much like to collaborate with competitors, people that have a different point of view. We have great respect for all the work that Sam's team has done. Sam, to that point, welcome to C-Suite Conversations. Scott, I can't tell you how um, happy I am to be here. I sincerely appreciate all of your contributions. And, and to your, uh, I, I think, a very, very good point to start out here with, I, I, I don't know that I speak for everybody at the Center for Leadership Studies, but uh, I know I've never viewed um, Stephen Covey or Seven Habits or any of the great content that has come out of, of Covey leadership as competitive. I, I think there are a number of concepts, a number of tools that are timeless, that, that are kind of foundational, if you will, and certainly Seven Habits and other contributions that, that that the Covey organization has made fit that mold. And I also think situational leadership, um, you, you know, from our standpoint, deserves a place, you know, on that foundation. So I could not be happier to be here and uh, look forward to whatever questions that you have. You and I have vision lock on, on that. In my 30-year sales career inside of Franklin Covey, whenever a client or a, or a colleague wanted to have me say, well, how is your content you know, better than DDI's or better than Marcus Buckingham's or better than Ken Blanchard's or better than you know, Center for Creative Studies? I would say, you know, I can't speak to their solutions. I, I think they have great resonance and if they're right for you, go with them. What I can speak about is what we do. I never got into that tit for tat on trying to pitch our solutions against someone else's. Some may think that's um, naive. I think it's quite honoring. The more people that are helping solve leadership challenges, the more companies are taking it seriously and seeing it less as a cost and more as an investment because you and I have a lifelong passion around recognizing that people don't quit companies. They quit bad leaders and they quit corrupt cultures. So Sam, let's take that as an introduction to have you rewind a little bit. I'm interested both in your own professional journey as well as what your organization focuses on. Would you take a few minutes and rewind and talk about where you got to where you are, how you got to where you are, and talk a little bit about what the center does? Sure. Well, I, um, I was an instructor years ago, uh, decades ago, uh, for the Coast Guard in the Coast Guard Leadership School, and we use situational leadership to train junior officers, senior enlisted, and senior officers in, in a week-long leadership school. And, and one thing led to another, and I wound up in 1983 taking a job for Dr. Paul Hersey, who developed um, situational leadership 
to both sell and facilitate, uh, at the time it was referred to as the Essentials of Situational Leadership Program. And it, it was that kind of you know point in your career where it, it really was a defining moment, even though I didn't know it at the time, because just about everything that I have done since, I, I sort of view it through the lens or the eyes of situational leadership. And the first two words, as you may or may not be aware, that you learn when you work at the center are it depends. And, you know, there, there is no such thing as a best approach or a way to do it. Uh, every style works, every style doesn't. Uh, the, the key is to build the diagnostic skills or the cognitive skills to figure out when to do what. And, and that has stuck with me through my entire career. Uh, my wife, Maureen, and I left the center in 1986. And we started a custom development program called Performance Impact, still very heavily influenced, you know, by situational leadership. And one thing led to another. And in 2011, we came back and merged with the Center for Leadership Studies. So that's kind of how I have have gotten back to the point, uh, you know, where I am now. As as far as as what we are 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 doing now. Um, and, and I think the same could be could be said for for the Covey organization. It's it's like how can content that was developed in our case fifty years ago still be relevant today? And and my answer to that is I, I think there really are, as I've mentioned, you know, kind of foundational pieces to influence, no matter how complicated the scenario becomes, that that are still highly highly relevant, but still the world has undoubtedly changed from less, you know, you know, it used to be very hierarchical organizations modeled either after, you know, um, you know, a church or the military where, you know, like things flowed from the top down to, to now a much more negotiated um, set of circumstances where people are figuring out what tasks are what the readiness level of employees is to perform those tasks. And as such, you know, what leadership style makes the most sense. So the word that we use more than anything in this day and age is align. How do you as a leader align with followers, employees to get things done and in essence form a relationship with them you know, around the work. It's it's where I've been very intrigued, you know, with, with your work on mentorship. As, as I think I mentioned the last time we spoke, very few people, when you ask them to talk about the best leader they've ever had in their life, talk about somebody that helped them figure out how to do a spreadsheet or to perform a technical task, they, they, they talk about how those leaders use those tasks to, to really mentor them with some of the bigger aspects and bigger challenges in their life so that they could move forward effectively. So um, in brief, that's sort of the last, you know, 40 years of my existence. Very happy to be here once again. Sam, thank you for that. I think it's important to recognize, as you would, some segment of our listening audience would associate the term situational leadership with, with um, Ken Blanchard. Would you just clarify how you operate in a complementary fashion in that space and the center? What's, what, what does that look like? Because no doubt some people might, might hear situational leadership and think, Ken, will you talk about how you operate in a complementary but independent fashion? Yeah, I, I would say I, I would liken it to, you know, any any competitor or any any sort of set of circumstances where there is a direct alternative 
yeah. you know, to what you have, sort of a Pepsi Coke type situation. Right. Um, you, you know, so in that context, um, we have great respect, you know, for, you know, for Ken, certainly as an individual and his many contributions to the, uh, you know, to the industry. But, but also, you know, like there's, there's no doubt about it. And we, we look forward to the conversations that if an organization is considering situational leadership as an option, look at their stuff, look at our stuff, let us make our case, let them make their case. And then, you know, like, like figure out which, which organization is best to do business with and which model makes the most sense for you. So I, I would say we, especially in this day and age, we, we very, um, peacefully and respectfully compete. Yeah. That would be the best way that I would describe it. Yeah, beautifully said. Okay, so now let's get into the concept, if you will, of situational leadership. For those who may not have context for that, uh, describe why that's such a relevant leadership solution and style, to your point, that has now, I guess, close to 50 years, been a thriving leadership um, practice, if you will. Some people may not know what that what? means. Yeah, I would say like for the first 50 years of our industry, which which, um, you know, started in, in uh, you know, 1917 with Frederick, Frederick Taylor and scientific management, there was really a search for like, what's the best leadership style? Should leaders be autocratic? Should they be democratic? Um, you know, kind of the, the you know, the, the one study in our industry's history that, that kind of really tried to, to give answers to that, the Ohio State studies in the 1950s. It, it, it did this massive research project across industries, tens of thousands of people, two parameters. One was success. Did the job get done? The second was effectiveness. Did you like working for the leader? Would you do it again? And, and what they determined at the end of that study was it depends. There were autocratic leaders that were both successful and effective. There were democratic leaders that were both successful and effective. There were even leaders at the time, they really didn't know what to call it, um, that didn't do too much of anything. They, they, they came up with the term laissez-faire leader, which was really the precursor to delegation and empowerment. But, but it was really very well established that um, leaders need to adjust. There's, there's no such thing as a one best approach. And ironically, through the first 50 years of, of behavioral science and leadership development in particular, Motivation, employee motivation and development was studied separate and distinct from the studies that were going on on leadership. Looks ridiculous, you know, like looking back, but when it was taking place, that was a reality. So the work of Herzberg and Maslow and David McClelland and, um, and others that focused on follower motivation and development was sort of this separate and distinct thing. And Hersey was really at Ohio University in the 1960s one of the first people to come up with a contingency approach to leadership. It's like the style depends on the person you're leading. It not only depends on the person, but it depends on the task. Ironically, change the task, you could have a whole different, you know, combination of task and relationship behavior that might make sense with that particular individual. So depending upon what I ask you to do, Scott, you might be at one level or another of ability and willingness, and I would need to be able to shift even with the same person to get the most out of you for those different tasks. So that's that's kind of really sort of you know where it came from and and what is as I've said before, um, I, I think what makes this a timeless framework. 
there will always be that. What are we doing? How much experience do you have? How much knowledge? How much understanding of this task do you have? Which leads me, you know, like, what do you need from me? How, how can I as a leader or as a manager or as a parent, you know, best help you get to success and effectiveness? Sam, you as the Vice President of Thought Leadership obviously are a sage in this industry after the decades that you've dedicated your time teaching, learning, growing, writing, reading, facilitating, keynoting. Let's talk about leadership through the lens of your own career for a few minutes. When you look back at your multi-decade leadership career, what's been the biggest pivot in your style? And maybe the biggest epiphany, the biggest learning, the biggest uh, transition point? Was there, did something happen where you realized, oh, this isn't working for me or my brand or the people who work with and for me and I need to do something different? Was there a scenario, an intervention? Get vulnerable, talk about your own pivot. Yeah, I, um, I, I think uh, you can see by the pause in my voice, I'm, I'm struggling with vulnerability on this, but, but that, that's okay. I'll, I'll just come right out there with it. I, I, was, I was a traditionalist. I think um, I was somebody that sort of viewed the positioning of situational leadership as kind of pipeline training or orientation training for new managers. So people that were technical, you know, individual contributors and they were given their first promotion. It was it was like, well, you know, you, you went through this and, and that sort of, you know, you know helped you along your path. I, I really think there was a major shift and it was facilitated by, by two names I know you know very well, Marshall Goldsmith and Alan Lally. But Marshall called me one day and he said, I would like you to write an article with me. And I said, you know, of course, you know, sure. And he says, we're also going to, we're going to do it basically on the work of Alan and, and what he pulled off at, at Ford because there's, there's really a different look at situational leadership that he has employed. And he was a, a, a big fan and used situational leadership during his entire career. But, and I know you know Alan, because you had, you spoke, you know, you know, when we spoke last time about like you had just finished a podcast uh, with him. And, and, and I think just by his very nature, he, he changes people. He gets them to believe more in themselves. He gets them to embrace um, things where there are no answers. And, and he really, really had more to do with me viewing situational leadership, not just as a tool in a traditional hierarchy that managers use to make decisions and then identify tasks and assess readiness and provide a style for followers, but, but to really use that model to sort of turn it upside down and, and to go to people that worked for you and say, what do you see as the task here? What is your assessment of your readiness. How can I best help you? And if you chronicle like his career, not only at Ford, but also at Boeing, um, I, I think that was the thing that just made me take a step back and go, wow. I mean, it's so much more powerful situational leadership and leadership in general, when as opposed to being a leader that kind of comes down the mountain with the tablets, you, you still come down the mountain, but you don't have any tablets. And what you do at, at the baseline level is figure out with people what needs to be done, what role they're going to play, what you're going to play, how you're going to measure that. So it's it's the facilitation of leadership as opposed to the kind of traditional implementation of it. I think that was 
at least the first thing that comes to mind, that was an epiphany for me. Sam, quick speed round. What's your biggest strength as a leader? You know, you're confident in, you don't have to be humble about, you do this really well. I think uh, putting people at ease, hum using humor as a tool to kind of put people at ease and, and kind of remove fear from any interaction that we're going to have, that's what I would say. What aspect of leadership do you struggle with the most? You know this is a weakness or an area of growth and either you have just neglected it or it's just difficult for you to master or put into practice. I think under the, the entire umbrella of difficult conversations, it's, it's providing, um, in, in, in some cases, it's not career ending, but it, it, it's, it's at least, um, the recognition that the skill set of somebody that you've invested in that has provided um, results for you for an extended period of time, that the industry or the job or both um, have just passed their skill set by. And you have to sit down with this person that in many cases you love and trust and give them, you know, that information or, or, or sort of bring that reality you know, to the discussion. I think more, more than just about anything, I struggle with that and I don't think I'm alone there. What aspect of leadership do you think the majority of leaders neglect, abandon, or struggle with? Not just you, but others. Uh, yeah, providing people with structure. I, I think that um, unfortunately, um, people view leadership in our terminology as style three. It's participative, it's facilitative, it's collaborative, it's it's all of those kinds of things. And they shy away from or avoid altogether, you know, the, the opportunity um, that presents itself to provide people with structure. Um, in, in, in many cases, like, like when, when you do ask people the question, like, who is your best leader? It in many cases was the leader, regardless of when they entered your life, it is it was the leader that that really saw more potential in you than you saw in yourself. And you needed a kick or a push or a shove or somebody that wasn't going to let you, you know, walk away from that potential because you had a fear of failure, you know, or or a fear of being judged or what whatever it might be. So I think in in sort of very brief terms, it's People need to become more comfortable, continue to become more comfortable using a structured or a directive approach when a structured or a directive approach is appropriate. And the, the purpose of a structured or a directive approach is to simply create movement. It's to say, take somebody that doesn't know what they're doing and is insecure and provide them with the confidence to at least take a step and make a mistake so that they can then, you know, become coachable, you know. So that that to me is the first thing that comes to mind. Let's pivot and talk about some unique um, situations. No pun intended. What advice would you give to a current leader that is struggling to adapt their style to a younger generation? Right. Say it's Gen X or Gen Y or Gen Z. That is that holds a different set of values. Not better or worse, just different. They value different things their view of longevity, their view of loyalty, their view of flexibility, their view of performance, their view of management is different. It's a broad question. I'd love to have like a tight answer. What advice would you give to a leader who is frustrated and struggling to lead a generation that they think has um, 
fundamentally different values than they do? Um, I, I think the most important thing to do is focus on what you have in common, discipline yourself to focus on what you have in common as to, as opposed to, you know, where you differ. So again, to use the terminology, like, like we really view situational leadership as a model or a system or a tool that helps a leader form a relationship with an individual around the work. So the thing that, that the commonality is the work you know, a lot of the things that are different, um, you, you know, kind of are generational or, you know, any, you know, a variety of different aspects of diversity. So, so as opposed to making that the focal point, make the focal point the work and, and then have, as you say, very transparent conversations about, boy, let me just tell you, here's how I come to the table. This is, I'd, I'd love to hear from you. Let's put all that over here and let's focus on how do we get this done? What do we do? What do you need from me? Okay, here's what, you know, let, let's align on what I need from you. But, but I think just, just more of a using the work or the task, having the, you, you know, like the, the courage, for lack of a better term, to, to just say, okay, this is what we need to do. You know, let's put everything else aside and let's figure out a way to do that and to facilitate, you know, that kind of discussion today, you've used the word relationship as much as any other word you've used. Let's go there. Talk about a situation where a relationship is frayed, a leader and a colleague, or a leader and a peer, or a leader and a leader. Uh, when you've got a situation where the relationship is based on broken trust, or perhaps unmet expectations, or unclarified expectations, or different generations or values, any tips or ideas on how a leader can either rebuild or repair or reestablish or establish a better relationship so that their leadership can both bring that colleague to a better place, but also collaborate better on getting results for the organization, which is why we're all employed after all. Yeah, I, I, I think um, you, you bring to mind um, uh, you know, a number of sets of circumstances, but, but quite often leaders or managers inherit that set of circumstances. There's just a built-in lack of trust from anybody in a position of, of authority. And, and, and I think it's a, it's a great philosophical question. Um, trust is key to everything that you do as a leader, as a manager, as a parent. But if you don't have trust, you have to wait until you have trust before you can lead. And I would say most organizations would say, no, you know, so so to us, a way that you and from our lens, a way that you build trust or rebuild trust or establish trust is is by matching your approach to the performance needs of the person that you're influencing to do everything that you can do to align with them to the point where they are getting something from you that, for lack of a better term, it feels good. You know, uh, they feel dignified. They see progress. They, you know, all of that sort of sort of thing. So, I, I, I think that situational leadership is a, a model that is enhanced when you have trust, when a leader has trust, in using all four of the approaches. And I also think, in the absence of trust, it's a model that you can use to take baby steps to establish trust. So, match your approach to the readiness level or to the needs um, of the follower? It's a tough question, right? It's a tough answer because 
you know, it's chicken and egg, right? Is you can't build a relationship without trust, but you also have to behave yourself into a reputation of being trusted by others through your previous actions. And, other, and different people trust different people for different reasons. Some people trust others because they make and keep commitments. Some trust others because they don't share confidences and they hold things you know, in secret if they've asked. So you also have to know kind of what is the trust language of the person you're trying to build trust with. Um, sometimes it's as um, simple as offering apologies as well. If you, had to, yeah. if you had to call your most impactful leadership principle that you could teach, one thing, what would it be? Um, I, I, I think it would be, uh, come under the umbrella anyway, of diagnostic skills to not be an impulsive decision maker, um, to, to, to really think through and take your time. I, I, I think really great leaders are thoughtful people. They think before they act. Um, they, they, they really take their time in figuring out what the task is, what needs to be done and, and who they're dealing with. And it's, it's like anything else. The, the more time you put into preparing for a presentation, odds are the better that presentation is going to go. So in, in, this sounds easy, but it's very, very difficult in a world that is just besieged with momentum that comes from a variety of different sources. But to take the step back when you have the opportunity to influence and to take your time, you know, to ensure that you're not acting impulsively, that you're acting in the best interests of the person that you're attempting to influence, and also the obligation um, that, that you have to the organization that you work for. So I, I would think it, diagnostic skills, cognitive skills, take your time, system two, thinking, you know, that, that kind of thing. You know, I kind of hear self-regulation, right? Is not everything you think should yeah. be said. Not everything you feel needs to be confronted. Uh, I think there's, uh, there's not enough importance put onto self-regulation because as a leader, you have to model all the values that your organization has um, espoused. And you also have to model everything you want the employees in your organization to see. Sam, what do you think your legacy will be as a teacher, a facilitator, as a leader? What do you hope your legacy is professionally? Well, I think my legacy will be um, so, sort of a point of connection, um, if you will, um, from Dr. Hersey to you know, generations that, uh, that follow. If, th if this model is timeless, which I believe it is, I, I think that that will be my legacy is that you know, I'm, I'm sort of the person that, you know, sat at the foot of the creator and saw the beauty and, and the applicability of what he had created and, and sort of now am blessed with the opportunity to sort of say, what does this look like for future generations? How is this applicable um, to future generations, regardless of uh, the complications of diversity or change or whatever else, um, you know, is in the face of the leaders. I would be the person that sort of was in there someplace between passing that baton from Dr. Hersey's generation to future generations. Uh, Sam, you are a sage, and that's the best compliment I could pay you in terms of your legacy. Sam Shriver, Vice President of Thought Leadership for the Center for Leadership Studies. Thank you for joining us today.
Very welcome and again, honored. We'll see you back here next week for a new conversation from the C-Suite.